0: The incident on King Street, that's how newspapers reported it, the incident on King Street in 1770 left five Boston citizens dead. A small confrontation had grown so that a crowd gathered in the streets when British soldiers fired their muskets into the crowd. Now, American papers didn't call it the incident on King Street. Those were London papers. You and I know it as the Boston massacre. Perhaps your childhood history lessons have that image that Paul Revere carved of a line of soldiers advancing with smoke billowing and blood as the crowd is shot dead. Revolutionary heroes like Paul Revere, Samuel Adams, John Hancock rallied support in the colonies against the British soldiers. But a young lawyer was pressed into action to defend the British officers and soldiers. To take this case would surely harm his practice. Actually, it cut the number of people in half who would use him as a lawyer in the coming years. And to defend the British, it would surely ruin his political career even before it had really taken off. The lawyer was able to successfully show to defend the officer that he'd never given the command to fire. He was acquitted, set free. The eight British soldiers who were charged, only two were found guilty and the punishment much less severe than it could have been. He showed that the soldiers were acting in self-defense against an angry mob. But see, that's not the way the newspapers had been playing this story. Now, near the end of his life, this lawyer called his defense of the British soldiers one of the most gallant, generous, and disinterested actions of my whole life, and one of the best pieces of service I ever rendered to this country. Right now, to have been the lawyer in Boston who Worked a case that many years ago that we still talk about would be remarkable in itself. But he called those actions the best pieces of service he ever rendered the country. All right, now, some of you, the history buffs, you're ready for me to tell you who it was John Adams. He would be America's first vice president, America's second president, a key negotiator in all of the the treaties that, that, that formed our early republic, and yet he says that moment of defending the enemy was perhaps the high point of his career. Now, that makes sense to us, doesn't it, as Americans? Because into the American ethos is this idea that everyone, everyone deserves a fair trial, even filthy redcoats. Even occupying enemies deserve a fair trial, right? It's codified into the, the Bill of Rights, that you deserve to have a lawyer to defend you. You heard it on television programs. The Supreme Court has reminded us that you have the right to remain silent, if you, and you have the right to an attorney, but if you can't afford an attorney, we'll even give you an attorney to defend you. So, This idea that everyone deserves a fair defense, for us as Americans, might actually mitigate or lessen what we think of what Jesus has done. John is telling the the church that Jesus is the one who speaks in our defense. But remember, you and I, in this trial scene, we're not in an American courtroom. We are are not there in the the Boston courthouse. We are in God's heavenly throne room, and you and I know, if we're honest, that we are guilty and that no one should open his mouth to defend us. That to do so would be to, to, to almost have to speak foolishness. To to say that someone who is obviously guilty, there's there's no attempt for you and I to to claim self-defense in our sins, our rebellion against God. We have willfully, purposefully, repeatedly, continually disobeyed God and fallen into sin. Sin that we love, sin that we chase after. And yet when John says in verse 1, if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. He's showing us the richness of the gospel. He's showing us God's response to sin. That, that phrase, look, look again at verse 1. One who speaks in our defense. That's, that's just one word in the, the original language. I mean, Greek, like some modern languages, you can pack so much into to sh- such short, short space. But it's a word that's only used in the Bible by John the Apostle. He uses it here in this letter, and he used it back in his gospel, the word counselor, or the the to describe the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Before Jesus left earth, he said, I am sending you another who will defend your cause. And now John applies this word, this language of one who stands up publicly and defend, defends one who has been considered guilty, who has been brought to trial. He uses this word and applies it to Jesus. Jesus is the one who stands in our defense. And the fact that Jesus would even speak up shows us the depth of God's love for us. That's what God's love looks like. And, and that's, the love of God is, is what, what, what flows out of, of this description through the rest of the passage. Jesus is the one who speaks in our defense. And, and, and look at the way John describes him. He speaks to the Father in our defense. He is Jesus Christ. A familiar phrase, a word, words we use to describe him all the time, but, but words that should remind us of what he has done. He is Jesus. That's the name given to him because he is the one who would save his people from their sins. That's what the name Jesus means. God saves. He is the Christ, the anointed one of God, the chosen one of God, the one sent from heaven by God. He is Jesus Christ. He shares our humanity, but he is from heaven. He shares the righteousness of God. And so not only is he one who can stand in our place, stand in our defense, one who has the right to speak, he shares the righteousness, the goodness The character of God. And so Jesus is the one, the only one, who can speak up. Anyone else who would speak up in the courtroom would be be quieted down. You have no right to speak. You are guilty. You have no standing here. But Jesus can. Why? He is the righteous one. He is the Christ, the one sent by God and the one who has perfectly done the will of God, the one who reflects the character of God. And then in verse 2, John describes for us the work of Jesus Christ. Not only does he have the right to speak on our behalf, but his actions show the depth of God's love. Look at verse 2. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Now this is picking up the language of the Old Testament the language of the sacrifices of, of the, the, people that, uh, the people of God, when they had to bring a, a, a lamb or a, a goat, and its blood was shed to cover their sins. The, uh, th- this is one of those verses where, where theologians love to dive into the verse and argue about the specific meaning, because John uses a very technical word here, in this, that, that word for atoning sacrifice. And so the argument is, well, what is, what is Jesus doing? Is he merely covering our sin? Or is he actually dealing with the wrath of God? Now, the, 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 the theologians kind of dive into this. Is, is, is the work of Jesus aimed at sin? Or is the work of Jesus aimed at God's anger? And so the, the argument is, is, well, which, which, which is it? And as they kind of trace this, this idea of atoning sacrifice, the reality is almost every one of those in the argument, having, having carved out space for his or her position at the end, says, well, actually, it's both. Because the work of Jesus is so great that, yes, aimed at our sin, Jesus' sacrifice covers it all. He is the atoning sacrifice. His blood poured out so that that our sin is no longer seen. It has been washed away. We are washed clean. So that God's anger, God's holy anger, his perfect justice, his wrath is completely satisfied. God isn't overlooking sin and pretending as as if it never happened. God's not ignoring your brokenness. No, God has dealt with it by sending his son who died in your place so that God can both be loving in forgiving us and perfectly righteous, doing the right thing by forgiving our sins. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's God's positive response to sin. God actively working to bring forgiveness. Do you believe this? If you, now, if you spent time in the church, if you call yourself a Christian, this is the core fundamental truth that we claim, that Jesus died on the cross, that he rose from the dead, that Jesus has paid for our sins. He is the atoning sacrifice. But if you've never confessed to this, if you've never admitted this to be true, then what our Scripture reading today is doing for you, what God's Word is doing for you is showing you your only hope if you wait until you are in God's heavenly throne room to bring your own defense, at best you're going to be left stuttering and and mumbling your way through maybe a couple of things that you can try and remember that you might have done right, but in the holy, overwhelming glory and righteousness of God, all that's going to be exposed is your sin, your sin which has not been covered. And so you will have no defense apart from Jesus because Jesus is the atoning sacrifice. And John says, not only for our sins, not only for us, just this local church right here, but for the whole world. All right, now, now we could misunderstand that statement because in, in the modern way we would use that kind of phrase, that Jesus, Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the whole world, we might be tempted to think, so every single person everywhere at all times is completely forgiven, like it's automatic. Jesus has just done it. And that feels good and generous to us. That Jesus just just deals with with all of our sin. It it seems so loving and, and, and generous, but but clearly that's not what what, he, what John is saying. Because he'll repeatedly say throughout this letter that no, some people do not receive the gift of life that is offered to them. Just if you if you flip just to chapter five, verse verses eleven and twelve where John is reminding them that that God has given us eternal life. This is chapter 5, verse 11. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. All right, so if, if this gift of eternal life, if this forgiveness was just automatically applied to everyone, then verse 12, which I'm about to read, wouldn't make any sense. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Some are still, by their sins, excluded from the gift of eternal life. So so what is John saying? If he's not saying it, it just automatically happens for everyone. What he's doing is he's telling us the wonderful extent of God's grace and love. Everyone who believes, everyone who confesses, everyone who receives the gift of eternal life will be given it. See, this is the the broad and generous work of the gospel. Yes, Jesus is the only way. Salvation is only possible through him. He's the only one who can defend you. He's the only one who can speak in your behalf. He's the only righteous one. But this gift is given to all who believe. No matter where you were born, No matter what part of the world you were born in, no matter what time you were born in, no matter where on the timeline of history you were found, the love of Jesus is extended to you. The gift is offered to everyone, and everyone who receives this gift, everyone who has the Son by faith, who trusts in Jesus, has the forgiveness of sins. This is God's gracious and generous offer to us. That's God's response to sin. All right, now I've taken a significant amount of time to explain just two verses, all right? So those of you that are doing the math realize if he keeps this pace up, I'm going to be here till next week. And if I'm going based on what he did last week, I I don't have much confidence we're going to get out of here in time. So what we're going to do, I'm going to to summarize the remaining verses more quickly than we spent building and, and sort of pulling apart these two verses, because we've seen God's response to sin. And then what John is doing is showing us, therefore, what should our response to sin be? Because look at, look at how he begins this, this section in verse 1. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. That's his purpose. He wants our response to sin to be to reject sin, to turn away from sin, to stop sinning. And yet, because we read back in chapter 1, verse 8 last week, that all of us will sin, that to claim to be without sin, to be claim to be sinless, to, to reach this point in your life where you are perfect is a lie. So John knows that all of us are going to sin. So before he even, before he even gets moving with this, this argument that you have to stop sinning, he has to remind us, but if any of us do sin, we have the gift of God's righteousness given to us. That's God's response to sin. Our response to sin is so that you will stop sinning. And remember, he's, he's writing this not, a, not as a tyrant sort of looking down at them. He says, my dear children. The word, I mean, it's the word you would, for a little child. Not just the ordinary word for the kids that are, that are running around in our Sunday school classes, but the kids in the nursery. My little ones. Those that are precious to me that I hold close to my heart. He's speaking with compassion because sin is so destructive that that he wants us to turn from sin. He wants us to have a confidence that the love that is shown to us in Jesus is really ours. Look at, look at verse 3. He's telling us we can have assurance of this gift. He says, we know that we have come to know him. He's saying we know that we know. All right? he's, he's, he's piling on these epistemological claims that, that you can know what you really have, that you can have this assurance. And he'll say later in this letter that, that that's what he wants. He wants them to know that the gospel is really theirs. But how do we know? How do we have this assurance? Look again at verse 3. If we obey God's commands. You see what he's saying? The gift is a generous gift of God's grace. The response is a response of obedience. All right, now it's not obedience first, because then the defense that would have been made in, in God's heavenly courtroom would have been, you know what? He's a really good guy. Let's think of all the really good things that he's done. Let's look at his obedience. His obedience would have earned—that's not what he's saying. He's not saying we obey so that we get the gift. You've been given the gift. The atoning sacrifice paid for all your sins. Now, obey. The obedience is a response to God. Our response to sin is a response to God's response to sin. All right, I'm just trying to give you a little bit of Johannine kind of language where he just stacks verbs right on top of each other. We obey because of God's love. And so John is saying, obey God's commands. To not do so makes you to be a liar. To say that you know God and yet you don't obey, that's a lie. The way that you show your knowledge of God is by following after him. Who, look, at, look at verse 6. It means that to claim to live in, in God, to know him, to live your life in, in the fullness of the gift that he's given, means you must walk as Jesus walked. I know, those are big shoes to fill, or sandals to fill, I guess. The, what you are called to do in response to sin is live the life Jesus lived. Walk like Jesus walked. And, and, and John is saying in verses 7 and 8 then that this is not then a new, a new command. This is the command that, that's, that's been around from, from the beginning. But then he says, but wait, but it actually is. There's something that is radically new about this. Now it's new in the sense that Jesus calls the command to follow after God, to love God, to love others, a new command. It's, it's back in John's Gospel on the night of Jesus' betrayal and arrest, the night of the Last Supper, Thursday night of Holy Week. Jesus is with his disciples, and he, he, he gets down on the ground, and he washes their feet. And then he gives them a new command. He says, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And so John is saying, this is, this is obviously an old command. It was built back into the very law of God. God is love, and so we were meant to always be caring for our neighbors. But it's a new command because Jesus reiterated for us. But I think what John is also saying is, now, church, you can live this new command in a way that even John is saying we couldn't have done on the night of the Last Supper. To follow Jesus' example then would have just been an attempt at mere imitation. Because that was Thursday. And we needed Good Friday. What John is now saying to the church is this new command, this new command is new enough that you have a new heart, you have new power to obey. Because Jesus died and rose again because he is the one who defends you, because he's poured out the Holy Spirit on you, because you have a new life in you. You have the gift of eternal life. Remember, which that eternal life doesn't just last forever. It's life we have right now in its fullness. You can live this new command because you are a new person. That's what he's telling us. And so, so stop walking in darkness. Stop living a, a life where you, where you hate one another. That's that's what John is telling us in verses 9 and 10. In verse 11, that that to hate your brother is to live in the darkness. See, it's only possible for us to now live in the light because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's only possible for us to truly, sacrificially, generously love one another because of the love we've received from God. And so to harbor hatred or frustration or, or, or evil in your heart, is to make false that which should be true for you, and so what would it look like for you today to do this, to keep this commandment? Because for me to just throw out the 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 the, the, the challenge that John is throwing out, go out and live like Jesus, walk like Jesus lived. Now that's a that's a big command, and so that means everything you do this week has to be sorted through this grid. How would Jesus respond in this scenario? But let's. Sometimes if you, if, you, if you throw the net so wide, you, you kind of get lost. So let's just, let's just take one specific about the way you treat other Christians, your brother, the language he's using here in verses 9, 10, and 11. Who is it in your life to whom you need to go and be reconciled? They might not even know that you have a feud with them because the bitterness, the frustration, the resentment is entirely on your side in your own heart, in your life, who specifically do you need to go to today, this week, and ask for forgiveness? Because when you love those around you, you're walking in light. And the the barriers, verse 10, for stumbling, the dangers to you are, are cast aside because you're not walking in darkness. There's freedom in forgiving others. There's joy in loving others, but you can only do so because for some of you you're thinking of, of, "Oh oh no, they know I'm mad at them." And they know why I'm mad at them because of what they did. So it's not, it's not hidden in the recesses of your heart. So, but the only way we can forgive others, that we can respond in love is because we've seen what God has done for us. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for your sins. And so John wants, wants to encourage us, wants us to be hopeful in response to the gospel. So that, that in, in verses 12 through 14, he, he writes, and it's, it's admittedly a very poetic section, these verses. In my Bible, it's actually kind of divided up and, and indented almost like poetry. But in one sense, it's, it's not clear how many groups of people is John even talking to. He's talking to dear children, and then fathers and young men. All right, so we only, like, first, are we only talking to the boys in the room? No, I think he's talking to all of us. Because remember, that language of dear children, it, it, it's not an age designation. Remember, it, verse 1, dear church, dear children. He's speaking to the whole church, and so when he speaks to fathers, those that are older in years, I don't even think he's excluding women. I don't think he's excluding those that have, that have never fathered children. I think he's speaking to, to, to whatever age you're at, whether you are older or younger in this congregation. God is offering you hope. My dear children, verse 12, Your sins have been forgiven. You know the one who is from the beginning. You know Jesus. He's the one who stands in your defense. You have overcome evil. See, when you face temptation, when you face the possibility of sin, you face it not in your own strength, but in the strength of the righteous one, the one who has overcome evil, so that John will say in verse 14, you therefore... Even those of you young in years or young in your faith, you are strong. Because the Word of God, which has been announced, the Word of God lives in you. You have overcome the evil one. And you think, uh, no, I mean, not if I look at my past responses to temptation. I don't feel that I've overcome anything at all. I can't even overcome the smallest inclinations in your heart, you feel like. He's he's not writing to you in your sinful self, out of your own resources. He's writing to you because your sins have been forgiven, because you know the one who was from the very beginning, Jesus, the Christ, the righteous one. He has overcome. And when the word of God lives in you, when you claim this gift for yourself, then the power that you have is the power of God. This is our encouragement in the gospel. Who will stand in my defense? I'm glad it's not you. I'm glad it's not me speaking for myself. Who stands in my defense? Jesus Christ, the righteous one. There was nothing that I could have brought to exonerate myself, to acquit myself, but Jesus proves his love for us, not merely by speaking for us, but by giving himself as an atoning sacrifice In my own defense, I would have been left speechless and in righteousness found guilty. But dear children, your sins have been forgiven. We have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask that you would apply these truths to our lives. Lord, for those who feel helpless, who feel weak, Lord, show them the strength of the gospel, the strength of our Savior and his righteousness, his perfect power in overcoming sin, through his shed blood, paying the penalty for sin, through his righteousness in giving us the strength to obey.